God, you are our deliverer. You walk with the meek. You walk with the poor. You walk with the compassionate and those who mourn. And you call us to walk humbly with you. When we are foolish, be our wisdom. And Lord, when we are weak, be our strength. That as we learn to do your justice and to show your mercy, your rule may come as a blessing upon this earth and in our lives tonight and every day after. In the precious name of Jesus, your son. Amen. So we're in Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, you might remember them being poured out last time we were together, said to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried, me, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. It said, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel, John? I answered John. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, wake up, keep your head on, pay attention. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They also are seven kings five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, verse 11, that was and is not, and it is an eighth, but it goes, excuse me, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one mere hour together with the beast. These, verse 13, are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. 
They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose of one being and of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. (laughs) So there are just some of those chapters in Revelation where you're like, what in the world is going on? And this is kind of one of those. And there are some really interesting theories about the prostitute. Why is she a prostitute? Why is she riding on a beast? Why isn't she just seated on a chair? Why is she drinking blood? Why are there these ten horns that come to life as kings and use her and then eventually abuse her and devour her? And it's very gruesome end that she faces. And then why are the seven heads of the beast, seven mountains, but no way, actually there's seven kings. Five were, one is, one's yet to come. The beast was, is not, is to come. You're like, what in the world? Use regular language for goodness sake. So you're welcome that I read this and studied it and you're welcome. Um, So here's the best that we can do. Ultimately, as you may know already, you can't know with certainty what John 2,000 years ago was communicating with 2,000-year-old language and visions to people that were in a context 2,000 years ago under an empire that's very different than our world. We can't know exactly what's going on, but we can take good guesses, right? We can do our homework. So that's what we will try to do. But before all of that, let's talk about the prostitute. We come now to this phase in Revelation where... We're coming to the third section, if you will. Remember chapters 1 through 11, we saw one narrative in which the Lamb comes to the one seated on the throne, God, Jesus the Lamb, comes to him, worship's happening all around him. He receives from the one seated on the throne a scroll, which has been sealed seven times. And the Lamb begins to open the seals one by one. And when he finally opens the scroll, we think it's a title deed to the earth. So this is like a king coming to grab from the Father who sits on the throne, the title deed to the earth to say the earth is mine. I'm a king. I'm going to come claim it. He opens the scroll and right before he's to read what's in the scroll, which you would assume is a royal pronouncement, this is what the king says. This is what the king gets. Seven trumpets, right before reading that, seven trumpets blast out to the earth to let creation know your king is about to make a very important announcement. So one by one by one, the angels sound their trumpets. Things happen on the earth to get people's attention. On the seventh trumpet, we read in chapter 11, verse 15, now the kings of the earth have become, the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdom of our Christ. And we see that that's the end. Jesus claims it all. That's what the scroll said. Everything belongs to me. I'm the king. Well, 
Chapter 12 rewinds the story a bit and goes back to the beginning and begins to look at everything from another perspective. So our first story was up in heaven, and what is the lamb doing, and why are things happening on earth? Oh, he's going to claim the earth. The second story now focuses what's happening on the earth, and it tells us about the dragon, who is Satan, who is kicked out of heaven, who fails to destroy Jesus. He himself is destroyed in the process. So he, in anger, raises a beast out of the ocean, and he gives his power to this beast, and the beast begins to conquer the world, and he begins to put to death those that don't worship him. So the dragon, Satan, and this beast, whom we have come to know as a term antichrist, are working together to get the world to follow them and their system. And it's oppressive. If you don't do it our way, we're putting you to death. That's what we read in Revelation 13. And then these two get a third component. He's the prophet, the second one who's like a beast. And it says he has, he, he looks like a lamb and he speaks like a lamb, but he's not a lamb. He mimics Jesus, but he's not Jesus. And actually he is excluding the world from becoming part of their economic system unless they put on their forehead or their hand the number 666, which is simply showing us an exclusion mentality. If you don't put our name, if you don't associate with our name, you have nothing to do with us. We have a world that's full of this ideology right now. If you don't have our number, our name, if you're not like us, you're not welcome to buy or sell with us. And now we come, we see God pouring out the seven bulls upon this scene. They correspond with the seven trumpets. You may remember that from a previous study. They parallel what they're doing. And so now we come to the end of 16. You might remember what happens. I will read it. It's in 16 verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. So once again, our first story ended in chapter 11. Our second story picked up in 12 and ends at the end of 16. And now in chapter 17, we pick up the final and third story in Revelation. So as the first one was this broad sweep looking from heaven down, the second one is a much closer look on earth, seeing what the beast and Satan is all up to. The third story, which we're starting tonight and will take us to the end, is even closer examination yet. It now looks specifically at uh, the beast and his system in very graphic imagery. Prostitution in tonight's illustration. Next week, we will see the actual destruction of the city itself in chapter 18. And then we've seen two allusions to Jesus coming. All the kingdoms are his. It is done. But in this story, you actually see him touching down on earth and what he does when he does so. Which is a very surprising twist from what you would expect. But not to spoil the story, we will get there when we get there. So, But okay, so now, now that we know we're starting a third story... It opens up with John being caught up in a vision again. The spirit takes him into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, this vast expanse of nothingness, he sees a prostitute who is lavishly adorned with fine purple robes and jewels and pearls and a golden chalice. Everything here speaks of power. It speaks of beauty. It speaks of prestige. But as John gets closer to the prostitute, he notices that inside the chalice is filth, abomination, uh, 
One commentator went as far to say, just think excrement. John couldn't get any more grotesque or negative in his language than excrement being in the cup. And coming down her lips, you thought it might have been lipstick, but it's actually blood because she's drunken on the followers of Jesus. So John marvels and says, oh my, what is this? Well, the angel explains in less than clear language than what I'm about to say. What you are looking at is a gross picture of what Rome and all of its glory looks like when you strip the glory away and see who's operating behind the system. This is Rome unmasked, and it's horrifying. So, I want you guys now with prostitution in mind, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. Hold your place in Revelation. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul is addressing the church in Corinth about a literal situation with literal prostitutes. Some of the Christians thought it would be totally fine to go to their business parties where they have these meat offerings, sacrificed to idols, and then afterward, they sort of, as the night wore on, some of them mingled away with women. That's what they did in these business meetings and did stuff with women. And some of the Christians thought, well, you know, got to fit in, got to keep up the business, got to feed my kids, I'm going to do what they do. When in Rome, you know what the saying is... Um, but Paul's saying, are you kidding me? So he talks to him like, you guys can't go sleep around with prostitutes. That's just a really interesting idea of yours that you can't do. And so he then reasons with this. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Like, your body isn't just something to be thrown around. The Holy Spirit lives and takes residence inside this body. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own, Christian. Jesus bought you with a price. So glorify God in your body, Paul says there. Now, think about the intense wordplay Paul is using here. You go to a prostitute and you buy her to use her. And Paul is flipping this around and he's telling the Christians, you were like a prostitute in which there was someone who was organizing and using your body and selling you on the street to whoever would use you. But God steps in, he purchases you, and then rather than using and abusing you, sets you free. Paul's saying, listen, Christian, you can't do that anymore because Jesus came and bought you not to use you, not to abuse you, but to set you free. He came and rescued you from that prostitution. And that's the beautiful thing we have tonight is to know how much our Father loves us is that He bought us out of a place we had no business being. We were stuck there, many prostitutes, with no way out. But God steps in and purchases us to give us a new life. And that is the life we're called to now is freedom in Christ But what John is warning us tonight in this passage of Revelation, he's warning all the church and he's saying, beware Christian, 
You are set free because Christ has bought you, but the beast, the beast whom we've looked at for a few chapters, this system, it is very, very, very seductive. This system operates like a prostitute that tries to lure you and to use you. Be careful that we are continuing to follow Christ who's liberated us and not giving ourselves to the seductive powers of the beast. And what does the beast do in our world? The beast tries to seduce us with power, with possessions, and with prestige. Whatever can give you those three things, the beast is luring us in and saying, hey Christian, sell yourself. Come on and do this. This is so near to home, even in the church. We look at churches that are obsessed with power, with prestige, with possession, and constantly fundraising for a newer, bigger building. The pastor who's trying to sell himself, really, to every conference that wants a speaker, trying to write books to get his name out there. And look, not everyone who's a conference speaker and a book writer has improper motives, but there's a lot out there that is just trying to buy power for themselves. I'm a somebody, I'm a somebody. Can you imagine the world system that looks at this and says, yeah, we do Christians. You're just like all of us on a much smaller scale. Like that pastor who bought his own books so many times that it became a New York Times bestseller? (laughs) Seriously? Is that what we're doing? But listen, this is the seductive power of the beast. And he's saying, you want power, you want prestige, you want to be a somebody, you want to have meaning and significance in your life. And the beast is seducing us. And we have to keep remembering Paul's words as this image of a prostitute comes in Revelation. You were freed from that, Christian. By the king of kings and lord of lords. No one, no system, no kingdom can stand up to that. So, let's look at the meanings of all these things, shall we? So remember, John is in the middle of the Roman Empire. He's being persecuted by them, so he has a lot to say. Now, um... Let's start down here in verse 6, where John marvels, the angel starts interpreting. So John says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. The angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Where do you know the beast? But he's going to now give us a clear interpretation. Here's all the symbol. Here's the code. (laughs) The beast that you saw was, is not... And is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Look at verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the seventh is yet to come. And when he does come, he will remain only a little while. Okay, so we have ten, or three very clear symbols here. We have a prostitute. We have seven mountains. We have ten horns, which are kings. Okay, prostitute. Let's start there. Many have written and have spent tons of energy to show that this prostitute represents a one world religion to come. 
that all of the spiritual movements of this day and age are like streams filtering into a river which is going to feed into one large ocean so that all of the religions eventually are headed towards unity with one another in which there is one religious ruler who unites the world under one religion. Now that sounds interesting. It also sounds impossible, frankly. How in the world would you ever get all the world to have one religion when some religions are all about meditating upon their belly button and other religions think that um, their God calls them to do very interesting acts towards other human beings, very physical and violent. Uh, another one's all about studying a book. Another one's all about being just and showing mercy and doing things in society. We have so many different ideologies. This one has so many gods. This one has just one. This one says it has one, but it looks like they have three. And it's just like, it's all confusing when you look across the board and you wonder how in the world could ever different cultures with different expressions and different ways of doing their religious stuff ever come together and be happy together? I mean, seriously, do all religions have a preacher who preaches from a text every week? Do all of them just practice solitude and meditation upon their belly button? How in the world could you ever bring everyone together and be happy under one organized system? It seems impossible. Yet at the same time, I've gotten tons of emails about people, watchdogs, saying, look, look, Christianity is becoming like the Buddhists. And uh, it's just showing how things are merging. Okay, I can see how maybe in an ideological sense, things can kind of like get muddy and merge together. But I still don't see how you could ever have one religious system in which everyone practices the same liturgy and does things the same way. Cultures are too different for that. But nonetheless, it's a very popular notion that this prostitute is all of the world religions coming together. Why prostitute? Because in the Old Testament, Israel was always referred to as a prostitute or getting a divorce. It was always sexual metaphor meant they were being idolatrous, which meant they're going for other gods. So the prostitute, who is the mother of all harlots, is an appropriate picture of the one true end-time false religion. Under this same um, prostitute image, there's another way of looking at this. In John's time, the city of Rome itself was worshipped as a goddess. The city of Rome was called Roma. The goddess was Roma. And Roma was personified as a woman clothed in robes with rich jewels. Just like the woman here in this passage and that Roma is, John is seeing the worship of the city of Rome in which um, it took, uh, we know in, uh, in John's time, before his time, 200, almost 300 years before John's writing, the city of Smyrna, one of the book, churches that got a letter from John, the city of Smyrna built a temple to Roma. And so we know that the worship of Roma was in John's area. It took a long time of gradual evolution, but eventually worshiping Roma turned into worshiping the emperor because the emperor became a flesh and blood representation of the idea of the eternal city. 
So this whole Roma worship eventually became the emperor worship, which is the very problem John's addressing. We have an emperor who claims he's the king of kings, and I'm telling you guys, Jesus is the king of kings. Now, the favoring the idea of the prostitute being the city of Rome and the worship of the emperor himself and all of that shebang is a couple of things. Um, mostly the last verse of chapter 17. If you see in verse 18, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Only one city in John's time has dominion over the kings of the earth, Rome. And that seems pretty clear to me that we're talking about Rome. However, since the worship of the city Rome and the worship of the emperor were being pushed worldwide, and though Rome allowed different regions to worship their local deities and gods and expressions of worship, they were bringing them all together by worshiping the emperor. So in a sense, we do have a one world religion allowing for local expression, but one unifying idea. So the one world religion isn't too bad after all. See how I did that? Pretty cool, huh? All right, so the seven mountains. Seven heads are seven mountains. All right, so some people say, well, actually, most commentators agree, there was one place in history known as sitting on seven mountains. Rome. Another way to back up that the woman is Rome. However, those that are looking for a one world religion to come here in our time, in the future, say seven mountains, Rome, religious, big, unifying the world. There is no religion bigger than Catholicism. So what John is saying is that Catholicism is going to be the center, the hub of unifying all religions around the world and, to back up their idea, the woman's wearing purple robes. It sounds a lot like the hierarchy of the priesthood. Uh, there's the golden chalice and the jewels and things. And they say this is a picture of uh, Roman uh, pope stuff. And that we see the Roman Catholic Church is going to unify the world by, they say, selling Christianity a bit to compromise with other religions and bringing other religions in so that everybody works together, but the center will be Rome. Another interpretation is that the seven mountains are seven kings who ruled over Rome, which it says there are, the seven mountains are also kings. Um, the only problem is that it's hard to find out who the seven kings are. Uh, you, I mean, I can name you all these emperors, but it gets really kind of messy and confusing, and they don't add up nicely to seven, especially because if you know your Roman history, what happened after Nero died was known as the year of four emperors. Because when an emperor died, they didn't always have a good succession plan, so, because all the authority was in the man. When the man dies, all authority goes, and all hell breaks loose, and everybody wants to be emperor all of a sudden. So sometimes you can count 1,500 emperors. Sometimes you can count five. And it's just like, it depends on how you count it. So it gets confusing. Um, but another interesting interpretation is that these five, uh, these seven mountains are the seven major empires through Bible history in which can be linked an interesting theory about a cult, a mother-child cult. And this gives credence to those that see Roman Catholicism as being this like central conspiracy to this one world religion. And that is that way back in Babel, 
Genesis chapter 12, there was this guy named Nimrod who's in the Bible. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. That's about all it says about Nimrod. But the the theory goes that Nimrod started the city of Babel. He married a woman named uh, Semiramis, and the two of them had a son named Tammuz. Now, it's a long story, different things that go on, uh, but essentially, Tammuz, their son, is killed, and then he rises again from the dead. They do different things like celebrating for 40 days, uh, which some people say, oh, that's where Lent came from, 40-day celebration. Uh, and anyway, Semiramis and Tammuz become this like icon, which then jumps over to the Egyptian empire, where you have Isis, the mother, and Os. Osiris, the son, and this like mother-child worship that happened in Egypt. And then you have in Assyria, you have Ishtar, the mother, and Bacchus, the son. And then in Greece, you have Aphrodite, the mother, and Eros, the son. And in Rome, you have Venus, the mother, and Cupid, the son. And then you have in Catholicism, Mary, the mother, and Jesus, the son. And they say, that's where they got it. That's why they exalt Mary, because there's this long history, this like planned conspiracy of evil devil worship where mother, son, mother, son are in this continual vein, and you can trace it all the way through to the past. Now, that's interesting if it's even true. I've read a lot of critique upon that theory, and people say that it's not real history, and it's a lot of jumping to conclusions, but you can look at it yourself. It comes from a book called The Two Babylons. Personally, I think it's wrong, brothers, sisters, if we lump just because some of the facts fit, we lump Catholicism in here and start persecuting it and saying it's evil. Most of the authors who write this way are Protestant. That says something. A lot of the ideas came from a time when Protestants had an axe to grind against Catholics. That says something. How do you get rid of your enemies? Throw them in a vicious narrative where they get wasted. (laughs) Now, I know very well that some people in this room are former Catholics, and you're very hurt by the church, and you have, want nothing to do with it, and to hear it's in prophecy, and it's negatively spoken about, kind of gets your flesh riled up, and like, yeah, get it, but pause, please, pause. Because we have brothers and sisters in the Catholic church. Yes, brothers and sisters, they don't worship a different Jesus. They just worship the same dif- Jesus very differently. Please see that. And I think it's very wrong when we say, there they are. Ha, I knew it. We are right. If you keep saying you're right long enough, what you're telling the world is that you are the one true one world religion. And everybody has to believe just like you do. And you're trying to make the world one religion. Whoa, that's weird. Kind of like the emperor did. Oh, Pause footnote, realize what I'm saying can sound kind of weird. Yes, Christianity is the true religion, but no, not your expression of Christianity is the true expression of Christianity. You don't have to make everybody worship Jesus the way you worship Jesus. And to insist that every Christian church looks like your Christian church is you being Caesar saying one world religion, everyone, my way. I'm getting ahead of myself. 
bless you. <laughs> um, interesting theory about the beast. Remember it says, he was, he is not, he is to come. Very simple. He used to exist, he doesn't exist, he will exist. You can say that about Jesus to make it very helpful for you. In a way, if you're, if you're the disciples after he was crucified, Jesus was, we saw him do miracles, we heard him teach. He is not, he's dead, he's in the tomb. But he said he'll rise, he will be. Okay? There is a myth that went around during the time of John, in the churches even, where he's pastoring, called the Nero Redivivus. Latin for Nero's resurrection. The Nero Redivivus. The Nero Redivivus was very interesting that people literally believe this. Uh, is that when Nero committed suicide in 69 AD, he didn't actually die. It was propaganda that he committed suicide. Now, history shows he did die. But the Romans were saying, wait a minute, Nero didn't die. And a huge movement was starting to say, Nero didn't die, he ran away. And he ran away far east to the eastern edge of the empire all the way to where the Parthians are in the far Middle East. And he's there with the Parthians and he's raising up an army. And at the appointed time, Nero is going to come with his army and launch an attack on the city of Rome and take over the government for himself. So this story was circulated so widely that actually three times people rose up saying, I am Nero and tried to start a movement against the government. No, it didn't end well for them, of course. But that's how much. There was even a look-alike, someone who looked kind of like Nero, and he said, all right, cool, I'm Nero. Like, this was a feverish belief and myth. And so that some have said, John is saying about the beast, remember the beast could possibly be this Nero-like image who's persecuting the church as Nero did, that Nero was our emperor. He is not, while John's writing, Domitian's the emperor, and Nero's out of the picture, but he is to come, that Nero will return. I'm not saying that John believed the myth. We don't know if he did or not. He probably didn't. I don't know. But he's using the myth to make the point that one like the Nero of the past is going to return and come in the future. And he's going to be a terror upon the earth. We talk about the Antichrist and his anti-baptism, you may remember, his anti-trinity. Now we have his anti-resurrection. He is not, but he's going to come back. That's interesting, isn't it? And this could be, very possibly could be, uh, that what you should call it is not the Nero Revedivus, but the Roman Redivivus. Because some say that the Roman Empire itself, it was, it is not now, but it will come, is going to be revived. And that's what the Antichrist will be the head of, is the Roman Empire which leads us to the ten horns, which are ten kings. And these are, um, as some would say, the European alliance, which is going to help the beast and this Roman empire conquer the world. 
If we're looking at this in the Nero Redivivus, that Nero is going to come back, or someone like Nero, um, they were saying, the myth was saying that he's going to bring kings from Persia, uh, from the Parthians, excuse me, and they, the ten kings, are going to launch an attack on Rome. Now remember, Rome is the prostitute. It says later on that the prostitute is defeated by the beast, Nero, and his ten kings. And that they destroy the city. They destroy the prostitute. Because the rumor was that Nero was going to come do that. Well, the other version is that if the prostitute is the one world religion, then once the Antichrist, the beast, is done using her to get the world together under him, he's going to destroy the one world religion and then say, ah, the whole time I was the god Kill her because we don't need her anymore. I hope your head hurts. (laughs) No, I don't. The huge takeaway to see, though, is that what John is seeing in his time, regardless of what it means for our future, I think it means the same thing is that there is always a prostitute in the world seeking to seduce the people of God in pursuit of power, pleasure, possessions, prestige. And the church is warned. She doesn't last. Those who raise her up will turn on her. She will drink She's drinking the blood of people whom she tramples upon. She will then be trampled upon herself. She will come to a brutal end. Stick rather, verse 14, with the Lamb who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Because that Lamb bought you with a price and you belong to him. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that the most important thing this passage shows us about Jesus is our need to be in relationship with Jesus. Our need to be in relationship with Jesus and not to treat Jesus or the things of Jesus like prostitution. Prostitution is not a relationship. It's a contract for however long you purchased the thing. Jesus, however, is a commitment and a relationship. It's not a commerce. It's love. It's not about what we can buy and what we can get. It's about what he has bought and what he has given. And one of the things that concerns me today It's not just in our nation, around the world. It's, believe it or not, it's on our mountain too. And that is the naming of the prostitute around us. The seductive force that's trying to call Christians out of true Christianity. And there's always this, there's always a movement somewhere that feels that it's their God-given mission to name the prostitute for us. You may know people like that. Them, they howl at the moon. 
You know which Christians I'm talking about, right? Exaggeration. But they, they get really wild and they, they, they start laughing in the middle of worship and they pick up these empty buckets and start dumping them into their mouth like there's something in there they're drinking and then they get them out staggering like they're drunk with the Holy Spirit. And then they start gibbering in tongues. Don't follow that. Some have called it strange fire and have had conferences on how that's evil, that's the devil. We don't have to call our brothers and sisters the prostitute. We have other Christians who may come from a rougher background or work in a rough background, and they have, frankly, a potty mouth. (gasps) They are our brothers and sisters. And just because someone cusses doesn't make them a non-Christ follower. For the record, I'm going to get so much hate mail. For the record, (laughs) Jesus never said anything about cuss words. Now, would Jesus cuss? I'm not saying he would be sitting there going, yo, WTF, bro. Like, what in the world? Like, are you guys too old for that? Okay, sorry. Um, I'm, not, I'm not at all trying to be sacrilege and suggesting that, but we establish these systems and we're like, suddenly like, you can't be in our inner circle. You use that word. Um... We have those that call the prostitute Easter egg gathering or Christmas tree decorating or Halloween costume wearing. Don't you know Halloween's a pagan holiday? Don't you know Tammuz established? It was his resurrection on December 25th. Remember that weird cult thing I was telling you about? That's where Christmas came from. Don't you know Easter eggs? It's a total Tammuz thing. They actually colored eggs and gave them to each other as this fertility rite. Yeah, okay, true. Maybe some of that was in paganism. But seriously, is my little girl going to be worshiping a pagan god because she's gathering eggs on Easter? (laughs) Now, Evelyn, we're going to go get some eggs. I just need you to know there's little gods in there that you're going to be worshiping. So just, you know, just say in the name of Jesus and go get the eggs. (laughs) Now, listen, listen. People, though, have concerns. That's fine. But please don't call Easter celebrators, tree decorators, present exchangers, trick-or-treaters, the prostitute. Because they are not trying to lead Christians astray by having cultural fun. Or how about the Black Lives Matter movement? You might be tired of Black Lives Matter, and you're thinking... All lives matter. My life matters. And I hear this rhetoric all the time back and forth. But please, brothers and sisters, just because you have a Black Lives Matter uh, tweeter, friend, Christian, and you're like, man, they're so like social. They're so like political. They're so like marched. They probably marched with the woman the other week, didn't they? And you're like thinking all these like stereotypes about them because of one little thing on their social media page. And you're like, oh, that's the kind of Christian I want nothing to do with. They're so like in, like, change the world through politics stuff and socially thingy. <laughs> hey, we need those brothers and sisters because, you know, they're changing the world while most of us go to five Bible studies a week. Or, ugh, those Science nerds, not in the doctor guy sense back there, but I mean, like, they accept everything, even evolution. Big thing, by the way, Christianity reconciling their beliefs with evolution. 
A lot of Christians, mostly my age and younger, you'll talk to them, they have zero problem with evolution. Zero problem. Aren't you a Christian? Oh yeah, I worship Jesus. Like, you're thinking in your head like, no, get away from me, Satan. That's a different Jesus. Obviously God made the world in six literal days and rested on the seventh. Genesis is a newspaper account of what God did thousands of years ago, not millions, thousands. And we sit there and we judge them. You're the prostitute. You're the problem with Christianity today. I know some evolution-believing Christians I've never been led astray by them. I'm not worshiping the devil because I know them. They love Jesus so much. They happen to believe that what science says about the world is what is true. And you happen to believe that the Bible has it right and the science community doesn't. They are still brothers and sisters. I could go on and on with this. Especially like King James only people. And like, if you don't read the King James, you're not a Christian. Well, I read the message. So, I don't preach from it. That would be weird. You guys wouldn't like me, but... You know, the tulip Christians, all those flower-loving Christians, that's the, the acronym for Calvinism. Still brothers and sisters. The LGBT community, still brothers and sisters. I mean, I mean the ones that are reaching out to them the ones that are okay with them sitting in the church, the ones that are okay with them even having a role in the church, you might be very uncomfortable with that. You might think that's wrong, but we can't call them prostitutes, the prostitute, because they're willing to work with the LGBT community. Or because Pastor Sally preaches at that church down the road. Pastor Sally, yes, that's a female. Oh, they obviously are preaching a different Jesus. Are they not our brothers and sisters? I'm not encouraging you to go and say, everything goes, whatever. I love that you have convictions. Keep your convictions. That's what makes you you. But do not throw your convictions upon someone else as mudslinging upon a prostitute because they are your brothers and sisters. And we need to love them and realize that if we are all seeking a relationship with Jesus, we don't have heresy question. Can a relationship with Jesus be heresy? If it's a relationship with Jesus, it can't be heresy. But, 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 but they, they, they relate to him differently than I relate to him. Yeah. You know, there are types of relationships and then there are ways to relate to that relationship, right? Parent, child, teacher, student, husband, wife. These are different types of relationships. Jesus, his sons and daughters. Now, within each type of relationship, you have different ways of relating. Different relationships can relate to one another through soccer, through sushi, through swimming, through sewing, through sex, through singing, through shopping. There are so many ways a relationship can relate to one another. I have students, right, in a class. I'm a teacher. They're students. That's a relationship. 
but I don't relate to all 10 of my students the same exact way. We have brothers and sisters who are in a relationship with Jesus, but they don't all relate to Jesus the same exact way. And a different relationship than yours does not mean a different Jesus than yours. So brothers and sisters, I am asking you to do the hard thing and to check within yourself if you have been prostitute calling around the world, around the mountain. Because are you not, when you do so, are you not actually trying to establish your one world religion that you're trying to get everybody to buy into and if they don't, they don't belong? That is so antichrist. So let us realize, as the worship team comes up, let us realize that we're after a relationship with Jesus. He's not something that you buy with right ideas. He's not something you buy with right ways of relating or expressions of worship. He is someone who has bought us where we were at, wherever we are, and he's taking us all from our unique places all to the same place where he is the king of kings over the kingdom of the world. We are all in that together, and we will all get there together. Let's value, let's cherish our relationship with him in which he has done all the purchasing and we belong to him and we simply express and relate to him. And then let's look around and say, I may not agree with brother's practice or sister's translation or his language or his congregation or their Pentecostalism or their howling at the moon or their holiday practices, but I see their relationship with Jesus and I want to stay connected because I am, don't have the most, <laughs> sometimes we act like we are the one that's closest to Jesus and everyone else is just simply in a circle outside of us. Hmm. Sounds arrogant. <laughs> <laughs>